You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 113 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. As we mentioned last week, David started an unexpected journey to go kick out some lizard. He pulled an all-nighter with some cave trolls and needed to catch up on some sleep, so he will not be joining us today, unfortunately. However, for this week's episode, we are rejoined by Dr. Jamie Goodall, who first appeared on the show in episode 58, and then again in episode 72 with Dr. Maddie McAllister. So we're really excited to have uh, you back on the show, Dr. Goodall. How are you doing this evening? I am good, Still kind of waking up from a nap, but <laughs> I don't usually nap because my naps are like four, five, 12 hours long. So, <laughs> does this still count as a nap if it's 12 hours long, or is that just sleep? Uh, you know, we just need to roll with it. <laughs> yeah. Since last time we had you on, I guess some things have happened. Maybe some, you know. Yeah, a, a few things. <laughs> So what have you been up to since we last chatted with you? Well, I kind of, I think, got a promotion. (laughs) It's very weird the way that the government system works. But in your GS level, there are steps. And I was a GS 11 step three. And now I'm going to be a GS 12. So I skipped four through 10, which is nice. Now is your title like senior pirate researcher or is it still just (laughs) GS12 or did they give you something cool on your name tag, a business card? I mean, I get an office instead of a cubicle now, but we're only in the office one day a week, so it doesn't really feel different. (laughs) Fair enough. historian though. That's okay. Excellent. Well, that's still enough to get in an office. (laughs) I have a random question. What what does your day look like as a historian working for, for the Navy, right? Army. Army, army, sorry. Well, you'd expect it to be the Navy based on what she researches. (laughs) You would, wouldn't you? And and given that like my most recent Society for Military History conference presentation was on the Navy. So, uh, but yeah, I work for the Army instead. It's, I don't know, it's very weird in that it's generally the same from day to day, although the division that I work for in my directorate, we handle tasks primarily for headquarters department of the army. So we do a lot of quick turnaround research requests. Can't really say much, but we did assist with some of the naming commission stuff that's been going on with uh, the Confederate named bases and stuff like that. I'm working on a history of the office of the administrative assistant for the secretary of the army from I guess, 1779 to present. So yeah, it's just researching random army stuff and putting it together. So we don't do like the long form histories though, that like our history's directorate does. So my day can be kind of random. Fair enough. At least it keeps you on your toes. So when we first had you on back in episode 58, we talked about a book that you had recently published within that year titled Pirates of the Chesapeake Bay from Colonial Era to the Oyster Wars. And that came out in February of 2020. You just published a new book. So we're recording this May 29th, but you just had a new book, Pirates and Privateers from Long Island Sound to Delaware Bay just came out in mid-May. So how long have you been working on on this piece and what was the inspiration for continuing your work on pirate history and archaeology along the eastern seaboard of the United States? Uh, So I didn't start working on it immediately just because there's a 
so much more work to to sell your book than I realized. So, and it was weird too, because we had to pivot really quickly since my book came out like pandemic. <laughs> so all of my signings and talks and stuff that were in person either got canceled or we had to, you know, switch to virtual. So I was dealing with a lot of that for, for at least five, six months before I really dived into to working on this book. But I really just felt like I had so much material left from my doctoral research and, you know, just stuff I came across when I was doing the research for the the Chesapeake Bay book. And a lot of it had to do with New York primarily, also a lot with Pennsylvania, which I was really interested by that, that Philly was apparently like a pirate hotspot, which I was not as familiar with as I was with New York City. So I just, uh, I spoke with uh, my editor and we just decided that I should pitch it, see what the the press thought. And they were really pleased with how well things went with the first book. So they decided to give me another shot. (laughs) And uh, so we just went for it. It is primarily focused on New York and Pennsylvania, but I do talk about the Jerseys before there was a New Jersey and uh, Delaware. So we focused it on the mid-Atlantic, I guess, is is how you would phrase that. Gotcha. And do you have another one planned for like New England, like from Cape Cod down to whatever, just continuing this regional trend and just connecting books with one another? I mean, funny you should mention that. I'm actually contracted right now with the History Press. I have a new editor because my editor, that's outside of her geographic region. So she partnered me with the the editor from the New England region, and I am doing a kind of microcosmic study of Black Sam Bellamy to tell the story about Pirates of New England with a focus on Massachusetts. And that should come out next year-ish. Oh, that's a quick turnaround. It is, yeah. It's due to my editor in December. We'll see how things go, of course, with pandemic times and all that stuff, but that's the initial deadline to my editors. The draft is due in December, so we'll see. Excellent. I was just gonna. I was gonna insert like a, a bad joke about how no one's surprised that there's pirates in Philly because <laughs> Philly people are kind of pirates anyway. <laughs> but now that I've alienated at least a, a, a small portion of our our listenership, so this book is kind of the accumulation of you. You go down a bunch of rabbit holes when you're doing research, right? And you mm-hmm. accumulate knowledge about a bunch of different stuff, and sometimes it all doesn't fit into this either a PhD or the, whatever book you're working on. And this is this new book is just kind of the product of some other avenues of of history that you went down and were like, ooh, that's kind of cool. Ooh, that's interesting. Oh, cool. I'm I'm glad to see that it like I feel like those avenues that I when I do it myself doesn't actually come to anything and it like exists in like a Google Drive folder that I never see again. But I'm glad that yours is coming to like <laughs> I mean, that was sort of the thing was I, I just had this Google Drive folder of like random shit from the digital archives and stuff and I was like, I don't know if I'm ever gonna get to use this, but I'm gonna hold on to it just in case. And it just happened to work out that I found a use for it. So, and it was kind of easy to pitch it just because one of the most infamous pirates, Captain Kidd is from New York, like had lived in New York, like the whole, like got his start in New York. So having his name on my proposal probably helped a lot. Fair enough. So (laughs) With with your new book, the one that's that's dealing with the Mid Atlantic, generally are the time periods kind of similar to what you were writing about in the Chesapeake Bay, or, or do we start seeing piracy and privateering beginning 
earlier or like what's that difference? Because there is historically different economic differences between the Chesapeake Bay and the Mid-Atlantic. So how does that shape the sort of privateer and and pirate activity that is occurring in in the Mid-Atlantic? Yeah, so I started actually a lot earlier in the Chesapeake region. Well, I say a lot earlier, I would say like 30 years earlier than generally, just because we had that uh, situation between William Claiborne and sort of this territorial dispute between what would be the colony of Maryland and what was the colony of Virginia. Whereas in New York, because the English don't have control of New York until the 1660s, uh, after they take it from the Dutch, uh, the piracy that I look at starts a little bit later than what I did with the Chesapeake Bay book. And so it's not that the economy of New York starts later, it's just under different control. And the Dutch operate economically quite differently than the English did in terms of the Dutch were more... I would say sort of free trade oriented, whereas the English is very like monopolization. That's why they set up the Royal African Company, because they don't want people trading with the Portuguese and the French for enslaved people. They you know, set up the uh, East Indies Trading Company and the West Indies Trading Company type stuff so that they're not their people aren't trading with the Dutch. And so, whereas the Dutch are just like, we'll trade with whoever has money. So, <laughs> and they also have a very different relationship with the indigenous populations of the area than the English do. So it was interesting to, I kind of start with that transition in New York from Dutch to English control and sort of how that creates a system where piracy is sort of a natural element uh, of the economic development there just because it is kind of a chaotic start. So, and piracy is kind of a chaotic business. So it just kind of made sense. So, so the piracy was not as prevalent in like a free trade system where there's not really any restrictions or anything like that. And it kind of increases and starts because of that. I would say so. Yeah. I mean, because it, there, I, I've only read one book that really dealt with Dutch pirates, and that was Virginia Lunsford's book on Dutch piracy and privateering. But it just seems that they're not the greatest number of pirates are not Dutch. <laughs> I would say the vast majority of the ones we come across are usually English or French. And so it just doesn't seem that the Dutch, with this sort of free trade idealized economy, they don't have a government that is tacitly supporting piracy the way that you have like the English governors, for example, who are like, you know, on the one hand, they have to do what the crown wants. On the other hand, they have to do what the people in their colony want because, you know, they don't want to be killed. And they also have to do what they want because they're not getting paid very much as a governor. So they want money. So you know, they're balancing these desires in a way that government officials in the Dutch system aren't having to to do. Fair enough. So as we transition from New Amsterdam to New York and the English take control of the Dutch colony within the, the Mid-Atlantic, who's kind of the first pirate to show up on the scene to start causing mayhem? I don't know that there's a first, so to speak, just because it sort of seems like it all kind of like takes off at once in terms of people who are engaging in piracy. I know 
I, I sort of start the book looking at sort of how we go from this chaotic beginning and, and how fortune and misery really sort of develops quite quickly. <laughs> I start with Samuel Burgess, who is a very interesting guy. He gets his start on the Blessed William, which was actually commanded by Captain William Kidd. And I believe this was before Kidd becomes a pirate. It's this is what sets Kid off on becoming a pirate hunter to start because Burgess and the other crew members are part of this mutiny that take place on the Blessed William. Basically, they leave Kid on shore. They name this guy William Mason. He was part owner of the ship with Kid, and they name him commander. And they're like, all right, we're going to go pirating now because everything else has sucked so far. And, you know, they were just very apt for, for adventure. And they do pretty well initially. They, they're taking some Spanish ships and they actually land in New York, I want to say around 1690. And because New York, you know, by 1690, it's fairly well established as an English colony by that point, their commander is able to obtain technically, I guess, a privateering commission to attack French vessels from Governor Jacob Leisler. And of course, at this point, though, the... <laughs> The legality of their commission is debatable, uh, given Jacob Leisler's background. And so, you know, I start the book with this kind of chaotic situation between Leisler and then there's people who hate Jacob Leisler. And so they're fighting against him and his pirates that they call them. They're like, they're not privateers. They don't count. Then... After they get rid of Leisler, Benjamin Fletcher comes in and then Fletcher's really fond of pirates and it's just... It's just one of those situations where there's just madness from the get-go. And so if I had to pick a start, like the fun person to start with is Samuel Burgess, just because when you think about the mutiny of Captain Kidd, you just think about Captain Kidd. You don't think about the actual people on board who did the mutiny. I find Burgess an interesting guy. Fair enough. Okay. So what are they primarily like... With this questionable commission for privateering against the French, what sort of raw materials are they attacking the, the French for? At this point, I think a lot of what they're dealing with uh, is material from the fur trade. So the furs that are being sent from New France back to Europe. So that's kind of like the the hot ticket would be the, the furs from that trade. But they're pretty open to, to taking whatever it is that the French have on board. If that happens to be enslaved people, then they will do it. If it happens to be silks or linens, they're perfectly fine with that. But I would say what makes them the most money is probably, at least in the earlier part, the, the furs from the fur trade. Okay. Well, I think that's all for now with this segment. Uh, we'll be right back with episode 113. <laughs> we'll be right back with episode uh, 113 with Dr. Jamie Goodall right after these messages. And welcome back to episode 113 of the Life Ruins podcast. We're here with Dr. Jamie Goodall to continue talking about her new book on pirates and privateers from the Mid-Atlantic. In the green room, in between recordings, we were kind of chatting about where we wanted to go next. And you had mentioned that they're, unlike in the Chesapeake, there is a connection with mid-Atlantic piracy with Madagascar, of all places, which <laughs> is on the eastern seaboard of Africa. It's an island out there, rather large island. So how, 
how does this connection develop and what does it look like? Is it a le- is it a lemur trade, by the way? <laughs> it should have been. It should have been. I think it would have been better. <laughs> so what ends up happening is that the merchants in New York specifically, they realized that they were having to compete directly with the Royal African Company's monopoly on West Africa. And so as they recognized this problem, at least in terms of their income, they realized that this area on the East Coast or off the East Coast of Africa, the Malagasy people of Madagascar made for another way of trade and also enslaving people. So one of the prominent merchants of New York sends a man named Adam Baldridge to Madagascar. Adam Baldridge has a bit of piracy, privateering type experience under his belt. And so he goes, he sets up this trading depot essentially on Madagascar. He does engage at one point with in terms of trade with the Malagasy people, but then he turns around and then tries to enslave a lot of them. And that doesn't really go very well for him, but it does become this sort of pirate haven, especially as some pirates recognized that they could make more money in the Indian ocean area of trade. And that's primarily because rather than just the trade commodities that they can get in the Atlantic, the Mughal emperor is frequently sending treasure ships from his kingdom to all parts of the Indian Ocean world, and his are less protected than, say, Spanish treasure ships, mostly because he hadn't had to worry too much about pirates until that point, the way that the Spanish did. And so pirates start to use Madagascar as sort of a a midway point going from the Indian Ocean back to the Atlantic world. And it's the the merchants of New York who really keep the island going, uh, sending goods and things to Madagascar that they need to to keep operating. Uh, I think it's Frederick Phillips of New York who helps Baldridge set up St. Mary's, which is sort of right there at the off the coast of Madagascar. So it's like this mini island off an island off the coast of Africa. But it's not relegated by any sort of government. So it's it kind of makes for a perfect pirate haven, if you will. So by the 1690s, it's it's pretty well established as far as pirates having a place to go to to chill out for a bit. They could trade some stuff. What's also interesting about St. Mary's is that pirates who decide, all right, I'm done. Like this was fun and all, but I'm ready to go home. They could just hop on a ship with the guy who's like, all right, taking everybody who wants to go back to New York, back to New York, no more pirating for you. And then he would just take them. So how does this That's nuts. (laughs) That's, that's just nuts. How did the Mughal empire respond to a bunch of Europeans suddenly just showing up and pillaging treasure ships? I mean, they tried the uh, legal route by by going to the the government, being like, "Your people are stealing our shit," and of course, the governments are like, "Oh no, I'm so sorry," and because you know they're trying to get in good over in the the Eastern world by that point, they're like, you know, we've we've done the Atlantic, now we know we can get over here safely, like without having to go over land. Like it's kind of a problem for the the governments actually, and so. That's why they hire people like Kid to be these pirate hunters to kind of go 
and and bring these people back or or prevent them from pirating uh, the the Mughal emperor's ships. Obviously, it didn't work so well since Kid kind of becomes a pirate himself. So I just I just picture Madagascar as like this pirate island, you know, like the, like tired pirates get sent to Madagascar to hang out, party, you know, and then. <laughs> You know, like on a cruise ship, and then they eventually get sent back to to do other things. <laughs> I mean, it works, <laughs> especially because if you think about it, sixteen ninety two is when like two thirds of Port Royal just disappears because of the earthquake. So, yeah, you got to have a place to decompress, I guess, <laughs> in a, in a completely illegal <laughs> sort of way. Yeah. So there is this connection to Madagascar. What kind of is like the next period of pirating in the the Long Island Sound? So, I mean, is there anything that really drastically changes after they kind of have this initial chaos of and just crazy stuff happening in the beginning? I mean, for the most part, it kind of ends up operating very similarly to the way that it does throughout the rest of the Caribbean in the sense of the 1690s to 17... 15 or kind of like the the heyday and then by 1715 is when people are like we should probably not do this anymore and that's when you start to get like the real smackdown against pirates of like we'll pardon you if you give up your pirating and if you don't we'll just hang you and you can you know just bob in the wind along the river thames or something but uh, so i feel like for New York, especially, it reaches a point where even the merchants are realizing, like, this is not as beneficial as it used to be. Their reputations are starting to take a hit. So it really just is this, like, chaotic beginning, highlight, and then decline. So it's it's very similar to, to that sort of uh, general timeline. Whereas, like, with the Chesapeake, because it's this bay and it's like protected almost, I feel like from the outside world to a degree, you get that sort of off and on all the way through the oyster wars. Whereas with New York, no, like you get the end of the end, if you will, of piracy, then privateering picks up with the American revolution. And then it doesn't really pick back up. It's not like the Chesapeake with the Confederate privateers, for example, like, you get some privateers in the War of 1812, but I really just focused the book on the colonial era, which is sort of the height. And then I sort of end with the revolution and I, I don't really take it beyond the revolution this time. Gotcha. And pirate piracy in like the mid-Atlantic doesn't seem nearly as fun or enjoyable as like piracy near an equatorial zone where it's sunny <laughs> and it's beaches. The mid-Atlantic is rocks and ice <laughs> and cold. So environmental factors maybe uh, <laughs> now is there in terms of that you don't see that persistence of, of piracy and privateering in, in uh the mid-atlantic as you explained as compared to like the chesapeake is part of it due to kind of the nature of what we see the mid-atlantic in new england in particular with industrialization larger population sizes and like a much stronger connection with commerce outside of like cotton that kind of propels this merchant class to be like, no, piracy is not as beneficial. 
Yeah, I would say the connection with industrialization is a huge importance for that aspect. Uh, I mean, you got to figure, especially like with Pennsylvania, you ultimately get the industries throughout like Philly through Pittsburgh, you get New York City, but you've got all of the industry that develops along the Hudson. So the colonies themselves are expanding and developing economically in ways that are faster and more I don't know, intertwined, I guess, is is a good way of putting it, that that they're interconnected with each other in a way that like Virginia's just chilling. They've got tobacco, but they're not they're not dependent on, you know, other places for their industry to to thrive the way that, say, New York City is. So so if they like mess around with one person in or one avenue of merchant or trading or anything like that it affects lo- much larger group of people so there's a lot more invested into these people and a lot more interconnected this like whereas yeah. like virginia is like hey we're by ourselves like you said we're doing we're doing cotton you know things like that so it's there's like vested much more vested interests in in the stuff going on in new yeah, york absolutely and so how do we see privateering during the Revolutionary War occur in the Mid-Atlantic as, as compared to some of these other places that you've investigated? So in the Mid-Atlantic, it's really interesting just because I feel like so much in terms of the revolution is is centered around areas like Philadelphia in terms of developments, both legally and, and militarily. And so since the Continental Congress primarily operates out of areas like Philly, you get a lot of privateering vessels getting their licenses first if they are local to that area. And so the people who were once pirating in the Mid-Atlantic or those who have the money to invest in ships, it's very easy for them to get privateering commissions compared to, say, somebody from South Carolina who then has to like get up to the Mid-Atlantic to get that commission. Because it's not, I don't think that the Continental Congress is really sending commissions to these different governors to just kind of hand out. They're very meticulous with who gets a privateering commission, keeping records of all of it. Uh, I want to say that at one point they're making sure that like all of the ones that are signed are being signed by the same person so they can keep track. It's it's a lot more meticulous than colonial era privateering under the the English crown, for example, where, you know, English governors are like, it's my purview to offer this commission for privateering. And the crown's like, I didn't tell you you could do that. And they're like, but in these instructions, I am interpreting this line here as you saying I do have that authority. <laughs> so... It's a little less confusing than than the colonial era. Gotcha. Also, what's the distinction being made in terms of the the terminology of American privateers? Because like, doesn't during the revolution isn't the Royal Navy just considering there's no America yet? Aren't they just considering right. the U.S. fleet as just a pirate fleet? Essentially, yeah. I mean, for the English, there is no. America. So there are no legal commissions because there is no government to grant those commissions. But it's really interesting. I feel that the English are kind of operating in this way of still trying to win their ex back 
over and over again in the sense that if you (laughs) did have a privateering commission from, say, the Continental Congress, they were less likely to automatically try you as a pirate as opposed to if you didn't have one, they would look at that commission and be like, well, maybe we'll just take you as a prisoner of war because they kind of looked on them as combatants as opposed to enemies. It's a very weird distinction that they're making, but I feel like, again, it's their way of being like, we still want you back, so we're not going to kill you right away. That's okay. the best one of the best ways to describe the American <laughs> Revolution is an exploiting it back. We're like, we don't want to be too mean. We yeah. don't want to burn all these bridges. You yeah. know, we have we don't want to like punish you for all the things you've done, you know. We want to keep that door like slightly ajar <laughs> just in case like, you know, things yeah. change in the future. <laughs> That's why I had my students when I was still teaching. We would do the Declaration of Independence either as a breakup letter or a series of breakup texts. <laughs> oh my god. That always worked out really well. That's excellent. <sighs> I've always been fascinated with depictions of John Paul Jones by the British, like when he was like just ran off to Scotland to go raid the coast, like a badass, <laughs> badass he is, and just causing absolute panic. So, all right. But then after the end of the revolution, I mean, I know for the you mentioned for the purpose of this book, you you kept a pretty tight time frame between what your book is discussing, but like. Do we see, because New England is definitely more for whaling, but of course there is a whaling industry in in the mid-Atlantic. Do we have some evidence of pirating persisting into like the 19th century or like really when that whaling economy is booming? I don't know that they're really operating so much off the the mid-Atlantic by that point, which is not to say that individuals from the mid-Atlantic are not making their way into more New England waters or I guess uh, like Nova Scotia is kind of like a, a big area where you start to see these people shifting just by virtue of availability of resources, I guess. So we do have evidence that like, say, people from New York are still engaging in some of these acts of what you would consider piracy, but it's not so much happening along their own coasts as much. They're really kind of shifting their their geographic fixation, I guess. Uh, okay. It also be like a really smelly thing to like steal <laughs> like whale oil as like a pirate. Like that's got to be, I, I don't mean, know. I- <laughs> Yeah. And a, and I'm sure they've dealt with a lot of smelly things, though. Yeah. <laughs> That's and a little true. less conspicuous. You go out on a sloop and just come back with whale oil, like without any <laughs> harpoons or like ships like that. It's like, where did you find this? Like, I don't know. It's just floating in the ocean. I picked it up. <laughs> <It was> just... <laughs> I mean, whale well, oil doesn't come pre barreled. <laughs> so, excellent. Oh, I think that really lit. We've been re- really lighting a fire over this. Uh, no, that's not even funny. I was trying to think of a pun with oil, but I'm I'm struggling. Well, I guess we can just like slip into the next slip on some oil into the next day- segment. <laughs> this is episode one thirteen of Life in Ruins podcast where we can't make puns. Nope. Welcome back to episode one thirteen of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Dr. Jamie Goodall, who just released. Her second book, third third book, second book? Second. Well, yeah, second. Bookazine with Nat Geo. So, like, 
Two and a half. (laughs) But didn't she also do one on Harry Potter too? I did a book chapter and I'm in the process of doing another book chapter on Harry Potter. It's very weird. I'm a pirate scholar. I work for the army and then let's write about Harry Potter. So. Oh. You, you're just the most interesting person and it's, it's fantastic <laughs> um we were talking in the green room something we haven't covered before because we always you come on here and also thank you so much for coming on here because we me and carlton love pirates we love maritime stuff so we kind of just pepper you with questions <laughs> and i feel i feel slightly bad about it but it's just so fascinating to us and we kind of have like the squirrel brain that goes like here there left right um <laughs> But one thing we haven't talked about is kind of the personal lives of pirates, because as you had mentioned, there's actually people who have pirates who have wives, they have children, you know. So how does that work, I guess? Yeah, it's really interesting. And and I wish that I had had been the one to write the book on it. But Daphne Giannacopoulos has a book called The Pirate Next Door. And she's the one who got me kind of interested in, in looking at pirates having like these lives beyond piracy. And what it is, is that because I realized that most pirates, they're not making a career out of piracy by any stretch of the imagination. They might do one or two pirate ventures and then retire, so to speak. And you know, what they do is they take this money and they reinvest it in their communities, whether that's bringing the money home to their wives and children or getting married. They buy property in their communities. They sometimes open their own businesses. I feel like it comes full circle when they buy a tavern, for example, like, and so they're, they're really, at least initially they're, they're deeply rooted members of their communities. And so this is why you see piracy kind of, operate for as long as it does in in many of these areas and that's because nobody's turning you know jim down the street in for piracy because he's like your other neighbor's cousin's father's brother you know like they're all interconnected in this weird sort of way and for a lot of these people like i said they're investing in their communities so people are like you know oh Uncle Bob just brought back silver from, you know, somewhere we don't know. And now he's buying all of this timber and it's very helpful to my business. You know, I don't know. But some of the most famous, of course, that we know about would be William Kidd, just because his wife was such a, a major part of the the trial and and the whole sort of aspect of his his capture and partially because she just has an interesting background herself uh her name was sarah bradley cox ort kid so i you know she obviously she started marrying very young but then like her first husband dies so she marries the second one then he dies under mysterious circumstances so she marries the third guy and then some speculate that kid might have married or might have killed that husband so he could marry her it's you know We'll never know. But uh, she does marry Kid. And they, as far as I know, they settle down in New York. They have like one of the nicest houses. They're very prominent members of society before it all falls apart. (laughs) But even some of these others, Governor Markham, I I think of Pennsylvania, his daughter marries uh, a man named James Brown, who is a well-known pirate. And Nobody thinks anything of it. They're just like, oh, hey, let's go celebrate the governor's daughter. She's getting married. This is awesome. 
she's decked out in all these jewels and shit from God knows where. His wife is like dripping with jewels and silks, like, and everybody's just like, oh, this is totally normal, right? This absolutely fits this guy who <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, like is it so it's like a it's a past ignored thing. They're like he he did that in his in his past life, you know. We we don't talk about that that period kind yeah. of thing. I mean yeah. interesting. <laughs> I think they're gonna say the same thing about my pot this podcast is yeah. a period that we don't talk about. <laughs> well, I mean it's the same thing with like modern criminal organizations today. As long as they're helping the community, the community doesn't care. Like they're not the ones. They don't own the ships that are being pirated or privateered and you know as long as they're not bugging the people around like who cares like if i'm a butcher in dover like someone sinking ships or or taking captives is not bothering me in the slightest so like yeah cool my neighbor like yeah i don't care (laughs) yeah he just goes away for months at a time and comes back with more stuff just in and barrels of whale oil that we can't seem to understand <laughs> where that comes from. They're like, all right. We got whale oil for years. <laughs> <laughs> don't turn the light on. on. I don't care. Uh, yeah, you know, my lamps are fueled, man. Um, oh my God. That's like, a, that'd be like a great commercial. <laughs> I mean, if someone I, I started could... pri- like privateering Exxon right now and we're selling cheaper gas than for $4 a, a gallon, I wouldn't care where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, but um, okay. So what else do we got in terms of um, these, these regional connections? Cause you are working on another book that's looking at new England. So, and, and this book in particular, the one that we're talking about, about the mid Atlantic, how are we seeing these connections between new England, the Chesapeake, the Southeast, and then in the Caribbean, like how interconnected are these pirate communities and the kind of these pirate behaviors that are occurring during the 17th and 18th centuries? Yeah, so I I don't know how intimately tied the pirates themselves are to each other, mostly since it's one of those like worlds of anonymity and and pseudonyms and and nicknames, right? But as far as the uh, merchants are concerned, they're very connected up and down the coast because it's like if you are, say, a merchant of silks and your friend in the colony of Virginia happens to have received a shipment of silks from some person they met in a tavern. <laughs> they might work network with you to sell you those silks that you can then redistribute. And the idea being that if you come across a shipment of timber, you will then transfer it to them so there are these kind of merchant based connections and then there's also government connections because a lot of these governors are not just governors of a particular colony and that's the only colony they're a governor of like they will often shift locations quite frequently especially in the caribbean but even in north america and one of the main connections that i have between the mid-atlantic specifically and uh, new england is lord bellamont and he Starts out in New England. He ends up in the Mid-Atlantic, I think in New York, maybe in the Pennsylvania area. And he really just has this war against the pirates. Bellamont is so anti-pirate, which is funny since he does get accused of colluding with pirates at one point. But (laughs) he is just this like when you hear Lord Bellamont's name, like, you know, as a pirate, like, get the fuck out of town. (laughs) Like, you don't want to be anywhere near this man. And 
it's an interesting connection too because as Virginia as their governor, uh, Francis Nicholson, I believe, a colleague of mine, Jeremy Moss, just uh, wrote a book. He did the Steed Bonnet book that came out last year, two years ago. And so his book's coming out on Governor Nicholson's war against the pirates, particularly the French pirate that operated off the coast of Virginia. And he and Bellamont have this like close connection in terms of trying to develop this anti-pirate strategy uh, along the coast. And so... I would say merchant and government-wise, very strong connections up and down the coast uh, and even into the Caribbean. So Right, and, and that merchant connection makes total sense. So you can't just come back from privateering or pirating and open up like Wiley Pete's Pirate Shop and just sell your whole <laughs> smorgasbord of goods. You have to get them, you know, backdoor them to different <laughs> merchants. So they sell them. You're not selling them to the people. You're selling them to distributors at a, at, you know, you know, you stole it, so it's basically a 100% profit no matter what price it is. So yep. that makes total sense how merchants with it kind of get involved in the the syndicate, quote unquote, of, of moving products up and down and, and these gentlemen's agreements of, well, I'm going to help you. I know this guy who came ashore with silks and I heard you, I know a guy and I sell timber, you know, that kind of idea. So that makes, you know, complete total sense. And that also works within, you know, the archaeology of the new world in terms of like illegal potters and all these illegal industries mm-hmm. that we weren't allowed to have because we were supposed to bring them straight from England. We were yep. just this raw material producing country, but we see that in history and the archaeology that there were these underground production, you know, you know we, we were making it work for ourselves. So that makes total sense in my mind. Yeah, <laughs> there was a situation at one point and I forget where it was, but they noted that there were more silversmiths in this like teeny tiny, like five mile radius than anywhere else because of all the pirate stuff that was being brought into that area because they didn't make enough. They didn't have the raw material to have that many silversmiths in such a small area. So it was like, we know where you're getting it, but <laughs> I just want the everyone to know that Wiley Pete's, uh, Pirate Archive Wiley or Pete, Pirate... Pilot, Pirate Emporium? Of, yeah, I yeah. don't know. That'll be opening up in Bloomington, Indiana shortly because <laughs> yeah. it, it is the metropolis of the, of the, of of the Midwest. The Midwest. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get on it with, with my upcoming underwater field school that I hope to take. Yeah. We'll just, where does all the, why do all these Jamaican objects? Where are they in Bloomington, Indiana? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Carlton, where did you get whale oil from? I just found it. <laughs> <laughs> it was floating up the whatever river is there. Yeah, it's yeah, it fine. <laughs> I have a, a really, it's probably not a good question, but it, it's interesting to me. So like if you could live and be a pirate in any period, where and when would you be a pirate? Hmm. Well, I would definitely want to operate in the 1680s-ish because I feel like that's kind of the nice midway point of like, piracy still going good but you haven't gotten to the point where people are like eh, we should probably not do this anymore so like you're not being as hunted as you are sort of after that period and and you're well established compared to the earlier period so definitely i would say the 1680s ish and then i would personally probably like to operate off of bermuda just because I like Bermuda. It's a tiny island. Like you can get from one side to the other in like an hour. It's nice. <laughs> like, and just, you know, 
chill out there. It's a nice spot to like, you can get to the North American coastline pretty quickly. You can get down to the Caribbean pretty quickly. Like I feel like, and people aren't like, Oh, Bermuda pirate Haven. You know, they're not thinking that. So I feel like it's a good place to hide. So doesn't it produce like a lot of, it was like a, a haven for gunpowder too, or something like that. Like I, I think so. Yeah. If I recall, like that was like a hot spot for the rebels to get gunpowder to bring back to use against yeah. in the in the southern campaign against against the British. Also, really good at like disappearing things. <laughs> <laughs> then again, if you listen to the episodes on the Revolutionary War, it, me and Connor and David don't know anything on it, so don't take my word <laughs> for what I just said. <laughs> There's some things I remember from that Revolutionary War class, but all right. So good stuff. Well, Dr. Goodall, it was such a pleasure having you on at such late notice. And and we really appreciate it because it's all you are just such a treasure trove of pirate knowledge that it's just so easy to ask you questions like this wasn't prepped. We just said we're going to ask you questions. And you're like, oh, yeah, this person, this and date. And it's just phenomenal that we can have a guest that we can talk about a topic that we're generally interested in. I mean, like who isn't interested in, in pirates like that's such a a classic part of the identity of not only the Americas, but also, you know, uh, of British heritage is, is that period. And uh, in particular with the uh, movies that were produced by Disney over the past two decades. <laughs> so, yeah. So before we end the show, uh, Dr. Goodall, what are a couple sources that you would recommend interested in piracy and privateering? Well, of course, we'll put both your books um, in, in the show notes and the links below. So if you, we can, uh, our listeners can click on those and order them directly from the publisher. But what else, what else you got for us? Anything new in the past year that's come out that you would highly recommend from some of your colleagues? So right around the time that my first book came out, Rebecca Simon's Why We Love Pirates came out. So I would highly recommend that. And then also, if you're a big fan of Our Flag Means Death, I would definitely check out Jeremy Moss's book on Steed Bonnet. Because if you think that show is crazy, Steed Bonnet's life is ridiculous so it's not that far <laughs> off quite actually and then coming up jeremy moss's book on on virginia piracy is coming out next month and then rebecca simon's book on Anne bonnie and mary reed is out in the uk but will be out in the u.s i want to say this fall so i would i would keep an eye out for those awesome and where can our, our listeners find you on social media twitter instagram whatever it be I am on Twitter and Instagram, same handle, L underscore H-I-S-T-O-R-I-E-N-N-E, which is La Historian. I have a website, you know, you can hang out there, jamiegoodall.com. Yeah, please, <laughs> please, please go to the website. It's cool. Like Carlton and I were both astounded. Like There's just this awesome pirate art as soon as you like come into it or come, like go to the website. It's fantastic. I was, I have to say, like me and David got for a while really sucked into this online pirate game. And for, I don't know what came over me. I was like, I, I texted you, I was like, do you have this game so we can play it with you? And you're like, no, I'm an adult. I don't have this game. <laughs> <laughs> sea of Thieves. Sea of uh, Thieves out there. Oh, yep. so good. It gave, Connor, it gave Connor seasickness. Yeah, it actually got me like motion sickness. So that's. Oh, goodness. Then I definitely should not do that. <laughs> Well, excellent. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. Jamie Goodall. You can find her on Instagram at Twitter at 
L underscore historian, where you can find those handles in the episode description, as well as a link to uh, Dr. Goodall's website. Once again, fantastic resource. She also has a blog on there, which is highly fun to read and get updates as to uh, where she's going to be at and where she's going to be signing books. And I know last time I said I wasn't going to play good cop and offer you something to rate and view the podcast, but I will do that now. Please rate and review the podcast. Screenshot your review. Send us uh, a DM or something and we will send you a sticker. But still, you should just do that anyway without any sort of reward. So... (laughs) And, uh, you know, you can join the whole list of reviews that we have. So I want to shout out to KVN DVD Johnson. Every episode has its hilarious points and well-researched info. Might have been a little wrong on that. <laughs> Guests are interested in their never dull moment with great questions and interaction with every person on the podcast at any given moment. Curator Jazz says, I love these guys. A Life in Ruins is a funny, well-researched, semi-freeform podcast for archaeology and anthropology. Each host brings some unique and interesting to the show, and together their friendship creates really great chemistry that is fun to listen to. Hashtag cancel David. A Life Ruins is more than guys talking about archaeology digs. They discuss the realities of the discipline, the mental toll that academia can have on students and faculty, as well as the future of the discipline. You guys have helped me more than I can explain through review. Love you all. Well, thank you so much, Jazz. So, yeah, join the, join the ranks of those giving us reviews. We highly appreciate it. And if you, as Connor said review the podcast send us a screenshot and your address we'll send you a sticker and then last but not least if you're listening to this show on the all shows feed please consider following our show individually so that way we have metrics that we can bring to advertisers and sponsors to help grow and build our show and with that we are out thanks for listening to a life in ruins podcast you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast, and you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. And if you made it through the closing segments of this podcast, you know what time it is. What time is that, Connor? Hammer time. Hammer time. It is Connor's joke time. <laughs> so, Connor, what do you have for me and Dr. Goodall today? So, how do geriatric pirates get around? Do, do I want to know? <laughs> With Davy Jones Walker. <laughs> okay, that was good. <laughs> that was good. I wasn't expecting that. All right. And with that, we are out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.